Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 34, and you can find that on page 33 of your Pew Bible, Genesis 34. We're studying together the lives of the great fathers of our faith, beginning um, with Abraham, really, and going through to Joseph, although we could have begun with Adam, who is the first father of faith, and then to Noah, and then to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and on to Joseph. We've seen this as a time of very much marked by faith. These men and women uh, were called to live uh, in faithfulness to God in a time where they had no Bible. Uh, they had some revelation that had been given to them. They knew how to set up an altar. They knew how to make sacrifices. They knew how to tithe. We've seen them do that on several occasions. They knew a little bit about morality and what the Lord wanted them to do. But their lives were really marked by an extraordinary faith. Um, and by living all of their lives as sojourners, as pilgrims, they were never allowed by God to settle down and belong anywhere that they lived. And the chapter before us tonight is really born out of that struggle uh, the life that they lived as sojourners, the tension that they lived in having no home. I am going to read the whole of the chapter, and because of its length, invite you to just remain seated and follow along with me as we read. This is Genesis 34. Now Dinah, <clears throat> the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, and lay with her, and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone." 
Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the house, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, this is a difficult chapter in the life of Jacob, in the life of your people. We pray that you would help us to learn from it and that you would instruct us and guide us through it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we studied Abraham, we noted in the past the lengths that he went to to protect himself, often at the expense of his wife. Abraham was genuinely afraid, you'll remember, that the people of the land would kill him in order to get Sarah because of her great beauty. Now, at that time, when we were studying that, maybe you found that whole scenario rather ridiculous. Was Abraham just being paranoid? You know, some husbands are like that, right? Why did this particular fear have such a grip on him? But, you know, one of the biggest failures we can make when reading our Bibles is to fail to appreciate the hardships of those we are reading about. There was a good reason for Abraham's struggle. You can imagine yourself struggling like this. Abraham was a sojourner, a pilgrim, a refugee. The reality is that Abraham's fear was well-founded. The problem was that he didn't trust God with his fear. That was his sin. He didn't fully rely on God's revelation. That was his fault. But the fears he had were understandable. As a refugee, as a non-land-owning man, Abraham's rights were minimal, if he had any at all. The local princes of the land could, and this often happened, just kill him and his family and take his stuff. 
He lived in this tremendous danger and tension his entire life. Now, this is criti- critical if we are going to understand the lives of the fathers. They chose, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob chose to live as exiles. And that meant constant tension, fear, and vulnerability. This was the great test of their faith. This was why we call them fathers of faith and sing about Abraham's faith. The question before us then every time we read their story is, how will God save them? How will God protect them in such a difficult situation? So again, one of our faults, I think, when we read the Old Testament especially, is to imagine that it was a world just like ours, and then to not understand why the fathers act the way they do. It was not a world like ours. There was no electric lighting at night. There was no such thing as a police force. There was no such thing as universal human rights. There were no large countries that spanned large areas and had highly regulated systems of law. You were protected as a woman by one thing and one thing only. The fact that you had brothers and husbands who could wield rather blunt objects and beat another man to death with them. If you did not have that protection, you were absolutely and completely vulnerable. We have a couple of marksmen women in our congregation this evening. It is easy to defend yourself today with a gun. You need a, what, a pound of pressure or less to pull a trigger. But in the days in which Sarah and Rebecca and Dinah lived, being at war with someone meant taking what we would consider a blunt object and slowly beating them to death with it. And men, who are often 100 pounds or more heavier than women and have greater upper body strength, were the only ones generally who could do that. That was the world Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were living in. It was a very difficult place. And as sojourners and exiles, they were outside of all that protection. They did not have the clan to protect them. If they had gone back to Syria, someone would not mess with Dinah because they would know if we mess with Dinah, Abraham, his entire extended family will arm all their servants and they'll come for us. That's how you did justice. But they had none of that protection. And it was a very difficult way to live. It was really a key part of their faith was leaving home, leaving clan, leaving all that certainty and protection and living as sojourners in danger. Abraham knew this. This is why he was scared that they were going to kill him and take his wife, because that is often the way things worked in a very difficult world. Esau struggled with this uncertainty, and he married women in the land and built treaties to protect himself and ultimately built his own nation. Lot, remember, struggled with the uncertainty of being a pilgrim. And so he married into the city of Sodom, believing that they would see him as a citizen. And you'll remember when the angels come and judgment is falling on Sodom, Lot appeals to the people of Sodom and says, aren't I one of you? You know, aren't I a member of your clan, your culture? Doesn't my home fall under its protection? And they let him know, no, you don't. You've never been one of us and you have no safety. That's the world these men and their families are living in. And it's very different, difficult way to live. But it's not just the threat of violence. It's also the pressure of the seduction of the culture, the seductive power of the culture. For example, this place where they're living, Shechem, we know at that time there was a gigantic um, temple to a foreign god there. Now, you can imagine if you're raising children 
and you're worshiping around a little altar that dad has built by piling up stones, and you're worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac, and the neighboring cities have these giant temples to worship their God with festivals and wealth and priests and all of that. Imagine keeping your children pure in that kind of environment. There was a tremendous pull on the children of Jacob and on Jacob and on Abraham and Isaac to either be destroyed by the culture with a fist of violence or be seduced by the culture and, and become themselves really Canaanites. The big question then from this whole section of God's word is simply this. Can God keep them safe and bring them through all these things? The threats to God's family are all over the place. The world threatens them, of course, but so does the person next to them. The threats often come from their own sins and from the sins of those outside. And Jacob had been through many weary trials because of this. They had struggles in their marriages. They had struggles in their relationships with their children. And on top of all that, they were sojourners and foreigners. We've seen as we studied their lives that all of these problems usually would come to a head when they had a child who would reach marriageable age. What are you going to do with Dinah if you're Jacob? What are you going to do with your sons? Where will you find wives for them when you're living in a culture that is utterly and completely pagan? And devoted to your destruction, ultimately. It was such a difficult way to live. Now, I begin this way tonight because what happens in this chapter has to be read on that background. That background, I think, will help you to understand, so don't, don't lose it. What Abraham feared, that the men of the land would take his wife, a version of that happens in this chapter to Dinah. Assaulted and kidnapped... How can Jacob help her when he has no legal standing and is completely outnumbered? And just at that terrible moment of fear, when his daughter's been taken from him, and notice we saw at the end of the chapter, she was still living in the city. They, they not, not only did Shechem abuse her, but he abducted her. Just at that moment of tension and mourning, when he, like any father, is just about out of his mind, just at that moment, Satan comes to him with a seduction through Hamor. Marry with us. Hey, there's a way we can work this out. Become one with us. Just fit in. Stop being a sojourner. Stop living this exclusive life. This is a great moment. It'll save your daughter a lot of public shame and embarrassment. She gets to marry the prince after all. And you guys can just be part of our culture and part of our clan. This has been the threat. Do you see all through our series the world is trying to either seduce the people of God until they're not like salt and light anymore or crush them and destroy them. In our culture, it's mostly seduction. Although in the last several years, the fist has kind of come out and we're starting to see persecution. We're starting to see Christian business owners have to close up shop. We're seeing Christians fired from their jobs for not cooperating with certain agendas politically and socially. But for the most part in our culture, it's seduction. Will we get so seduced by all the things, by the culture around us, that we just become regular people? We just intermarry and become Canaanites like the rest of the Canaanites. But for our brothers and sisters, say, in the Middle East, it's a mix. Yeah, there's a seductive element fit in with everyone else. There's also a brutal element, isn't there? 
Some of you I know follow Voice of the Martyrs. It's a wonderful ministry that tracks um, the, the struggles and persecution of the church all over the world. And it was amazing to me as I prepared this sermon. And, and again, it's a very difficult chapter. I'm approaching it a little differently, as you can probably tell, than I normally do. But as I'm preparing for this sermon, I'm reading the story of a Egyptian woman who was beaten and beaten and beaten by her father and brother's when she converted to Christianity. And then her father invited the imam over to abuse her in exactly the same way Dinah is abused like this in order to force her into conversion back to, back to Islam. So Satan is always working in our world in these two ways. He's always seeking either to seduce the people of God so that they're no longer different than the world. They just become accommodated at every level or to break them with persecution. And again, in our setting, it's mostly seduction. But for many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, it's also persecution and pain. So I want to give you that as the backdrop now. We're going to go through the text for what's happening. Everything that's happening here is made harder and more difficult because Jacob and his family are not really members of the society. And everything that's happening here, I think, in a way is connected to that. So let's look at the text together. In verses 1 through 7, you have an outrage. You have an outrage. And it happens on many levels. I won't reread those verses for sake of time tonight. But we're told that Dinah goes out to see the women of the land. And again, you have to understand very different culture. Our daughters are very safe to go out to visit their friends. Thank the Lord for that. But this is probably not a good move on Dinah's part. It's not uh, that she is responsible. I want to be very clear. Dinah is not responsible for what happened to her. Um, it is the fault entirely of Shechem. He pays with it for his li- with his life. Um, it is an outrageous thing that he did, a horribly sinful thing that he did. But there is a sense here in the text, and I think the church has always seen this, that Dinah was somehow drawn, and you can kind of imagine it, drawn to this very sophisticated and beautiful culture that's out her front door. And she goes out to see, the Hebrew can actually be interpreted here, that she went out also to be seen. So it's a little vague. Did she go out to see other women in the culture, or did she go out to be seen? It might have been a little bit of both. Probably at the time of a festival, probably at the time of gathering when people were coming together for a pagan ritual of some kind, she goes out to sort of experience the culture, to get a little taste of it. And in that moment, she's seized by Shechem, the prince of the land. This is the ruler, the king, the local king's son, and she's abused, she's assaulted, she's attacked in a horrible, horrible way. And Shechem really throughout these verses, you see, he's very selfish. He tells his father, get me this woman. And, and the text, notice you'll see that his heart went out to her. Please understand that that's just our English way of expressing he had longing for her. This is not true love. Okay, let's not misunderstand. This is not biblical love we're talking about. He had some kind of longing for her, attraction to her. Remember Rebecca, some of the family uh, going back generations were extraordinarily beautiful. Maybe Dinah bore some of that. She was a very beautiful young woman. And so Shechem is drawn to her, and he, he does this horrible act upon her. And, and it's an outrageous thing. In fact, that's what the words 
here in Scripture, right? This is an outrageous thing in Israel, verse 7, a terrible, terrible sin. But it's also sort of outrageous the way Jacob fails to deal with it. He remains silent really through much of the chapter till the end and doesn't act decisively on behalf of his daughter. I think it's important for us, and the text hints at this, why this was. Why was he so sort of uh, passive? Why did he turn things over to Simeon and Levi? Well, here's why. Because of polygamy. See, what happens when a man has more than one wife is he has separate families. And Simeon and Levi are Dinah's full of brothers. And so it becomes sort of their role to avenge her. Because Jacob's got multiple families to worry about. And we've already seen that Jacob has continued the sin of his parents by playing favorites. Remember, Rebekah and Isaac had their favorites. Isaac liked Esau, Rebekah liked Jacob. Jacob has continued that sin of favoritism. He's chosen Rachel and her son Joseph. And we'll see in coming weeks how his favoritism of Joseph and giving him a special coat leads his brothers to hate him. Because what happens when a man has more than one wife is you have inevitable rivalries, right? Who's the heir? Who's the most important to daddy? And when Jacob chose Rachel and her son Joseph, he sort of, in a way, right, marginalized Leah and her children. You're sort of the second family. You're the second best family. Some of you have maybe been through that. If you're part of a step family, you may have had this experience, where there's sort of the primary family that, that dad really loves, and then there's sort of the second wife family or first wife family that's sort of the lower down the tier. And so instead of acting decisively, Jacob sort of turns this whole situation over to the men that are associated directly with Dinah, her brothers, her full-blooded brothers, and they, of course, make a terrible mess of this. So Jacob really fails Fails as a father here to love his daughter, to protect her, to advocate for her and to fight for her as as he should. This is a great place just to pause and and remember a couple things. First of all, as I was speaking with one of our members just this week, we need to remember that our God is an angry God. Now, he is also a God of love. He's a God of joy. But did you know he's an angry God? And you need him to be an angry God. You want him to be an angry God. And it's a good thing he's an angry God. If, if Remember, God in, is right now everywhere in the world seeing everything that's happening. So right now at this moment, someone's being assaulted in this way in which Dinah was. And God is in the room with that person watching. If that was your life, if you never slept like God, and you were present every time someone was murdered, every time someone was abused, every time someone was assaulted like this, you would go insane within a week. You just couldn't handle it. God is angry because he sees all this all the time. He hears all of it all the time. He watches all the time, and he hates sin. David Pallison, wonderful counselor over at CCF, has now gone on to be with the Lord, wrote a book. We looked at it as men years ago in our men's retreat called Good and Angry. Good and Angry. It's about a righteous, biblical kind of angry. It's not the kind of angry where you lash out at people in an uncontrolled way. It's a very settled, thoughtful, biblical anger that we should have when we hear about things like this. We should imitate God in hating this kind of behavior and calling outrageous. And Jacob's reaction should have been that. He should have shared in God's outrage. 
and we should share in it as well. That people are treated like this, that people are enslaved, it is a tremendous insult to God. And it is an outrageous thing, not just in Israel, verse 7, but it's an outrageous thing in the earth. So there's a call here. There's a call here. I think we should have a reaction of holy and righteous anger that this took place. Second of all, though, see, now in verses 8 through 24, moving more quickly, that there's a threat that emerges out of this situation. And, and I can't help but know this is so often how Satan works. You know, a, a crisis comes on you. Have you seen this in your life? A crisis comes into your life. Maybe it's a loss of job, a problem in the marriage, uh, some kind of failure. And immediately uh, Satan or someone is there to tempt you, to seduce you in a direction that seems to be peace. And that's what happens in verses 8, to, eight through 24. Hamor comes to Jacob as sort of an angel of light. Yeah, my son did this. I'm sorry. I kind of know it's wrong. But here's how we can make this right. Dinah doesn't have to be ashamed. There doesn't have to be a scandal. Just let them marry. My son wants to be with her. And then we'll marry. We'll marry his families. You can stay here. You can stop being a refugee. You can be part of the land. This is what Lot wanted for his family, right? To just fit in. To be protected. To have the rights of citizens. To own land. And in, this is really a seduction, we need to say, of God's people. The language here is so strong throughout these verses. I won't uh, read them again. But again, the point being, marry with us, live with us, dwell with us. Now remember, this story is being written by Moses to the Israelites as they prepare to enter the promised land. And what is going to be one of their number one temptations when they enter the first night of the promised land. If you know your Bible, you know probably their number one temptation is to marry in the land and settle down with the Canaanites instead of driving them out as God commands. And you'll know that Solomon, ultimately, this is how Solomon falls, the wisest man, a great king. What destroys him? He intermarried foreign women, and they affected him. They, they changed him. They changed Jerusalem. He let them set up shrines to their foul gods in the holy place, around the holy places of Israel, because he loved them. They were his wives. He couldn't say no to them, right? Moses is writing this story to God's people to show them how Satan has, from the very beginning, been seeking to seduce the people of, of God into becoming like the world. If he can't kill us all, which may be his preference, he'd like to seduce us all. So that we become ineffective and weak. And that's really what's in view here. It's probably best summed up in, in verse 23. When he says to his friends, Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. They will tabernacle with us. And of course, the people are excited by that. Jacob's wealthy. They see God's blessing on him. Remember how all the patriarchs have had this sort of blessing around them. So Pharaoh and Abimelech, they've all wanted them to sort of join in on the culture. And the men will never do it because of God's work in their life. Here's yet another opportunity where they could be sort of seduced and brought in. And what's interesting is Jacob doesn't say no. Did you notice that? It doesn't work out because Simeon and Levi kill all of them. We'll get to that in a moment. But did you notice that Jacob never says no to this? He might have been, as, as sad as this is, he might have been toying with this. 
yeah, you know, I, I am tired. I'm in the land. Isn't that good enough? We'll just intermarry. These are fairly nice people. We can stay here. We can stop living like this. And, and he at least seems to be playing with the idea. And when his sons sort of agree to it with Hamor, he doesn't say anything in the text. He doesn't say, no, 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 we're not doing that, sons. That's not what God is calling us to do. He seems to be sort of drawn in. And to understand that, you've got to remember that Jacob, Jacob, although he's changed here, is still growing. He's still struggling. He, he's come part way, but he's not finished. That's really what Shechem, this city, is about in your Bible. Shechem, the city that they're at when this is all happening, is the place of halfway obedience. Many of you have in your home a plaque or a tablet hanging up in your home that says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Where was that said? It was said at Shechem. By Joshua. It was a turning point where Joshua sort of challenges the people who are you really going to serve? Who are you really going to be? And next week, when we get to chapter 35, the same thing's going to happen. Jacob's going to turn to his household and say, Look, people, put away all the foreign gods among you, and we're going to go to Bethel, where I had the vision, and we're finally going to keep the vow I made and give ourselves to God. Shechem is a place of halfway obedience. It's an image of that all through the Bible. It's, it's the picture of what Jesus means when he says, you cannot serve God and man or mammon. Come out from among them, 1 Corinthians, and be holy. It's that same idea. It's a turning place in the Bible. Shechem is a place of decision, and it becomes a crucial, crucial place of temptation and decision for the people of God. Will they just succumb to the world? Will they just get busy building their own homes? Some of you might have noticed last time that Jacob had promised, remember, he would go back to Bethel, set up a place of worship there, and live there in the presence of God. And he hasn't done that. What has he done? If you remember from last week, he's come to Shechem and he's settled down. He's built his own home, not the house of the Lord like he promised. He's, he's done sort of a halfway obedience and, and here comes Satan, here comes the powers of darkness through Hamor and says, you know what, this is good enough. Close enough, right? You've done half of what God's asked you to do, maybe 51%. <laughs> Just settle for that. Become one with us. And it looks like Jacob is going to do it. And that brings us to the last section. In verses 25 through 31, God uses the sinful, wrong, evil behavior of Simeon and Levi to keep that from happening. While the men are sore and weak from having undergone uh, circumcision, uh, they take swords, which were fairly uncommon in that day. They were fierce weapons to have your hands on. And they descend on this town. The men can't resist them. And they kill all the men and take all the women and children and everything that they own. And, and this, is a, this is a great sin. In fact, when Jacob's dying... He will actually say to Simeon and Levi, I remember that you did this to the people of Shechem. And he doesn't quite curse them, but he does say to them, you will not enter into the fullness of blessing in your life because you did this, um, because of what you did and the violence that you committed. It's not just, though, the violence, though, that they committed. It's the way they distorted the picture that God was seeking to paint. And we sometimes do this in our lives. It is our role in this world to be a blessing to our unsaved neighbors, friends, and family. In acting in this violent way, 
They have corrupted what God is seeking to do through Abraham. Remember, the promises to Abraham were, you will be a blessing to all people. You will be a blessing to the nations. And here they have just completely reversed that. They've used their setting as God's beloved as a, as a tool for power and vengeance. And they've descended in violence and in sin against the people of Shechem. The Bible teaches very clearly that we are never, brothers and sisters, to practice vengeance. Justice is when someone gets an equal share of what they deserve. Vengeance is when you go beyond that because you want something or because you are angry. It was one thing to punish Shechem for his sin against Dinah. That was certainly just. But to kill all the men in the town, the, none of whom had anything to do with this event, was what the Bible calls vengeance. Some of you heard the famous quote from Gandhi and others um, have kind of poo-pooed or played down the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What Gandhi, I think, didn't realize when he said that, and others don't realize when they say it, is that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is God's way of saying, you may not take vengeance. If someone wrecks your favorite car, yes, they need to pay to have it fixed, but you don't get to kill them. If someone ruins your business, they pay you what they're owed, but you don't get to kill them. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a metaphorical way of saying that the punishment should fit the crime and nothing else. And what Levi and Simeon do here is sin because it's not justice. It's not eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. It's vengeance. It's I'm going to take what you did. And while I'm doing that and I have the chance, I'm going to go far, far beyond anything that you deserve. And so it was a great and a terrible sin that led to uh, horrible problems in these two men's lives, uh, really for the rest of their lives. And, and if you think about it, it really sets us up for what we're going to get to soon. Remember, these sons decide to sell their own brother into slavery. Kind of, what kind of men were they? Well, you're getting a picture here. But the good news is you come to the end of Genesis and these brothers have changed. God will not give up on them just like he didn't give up on Jacob and he will change them. So that's this chapter. It's a dark chapter. It's a difficult chapter. Uh, this will not be anyone's favorite sermon that I've ever done. It's not that kind of place, but it is an important place. And there's some really important lessons here. And I just want to draw you to three very quick but clear lessons from this text. The first is this. If you haven't figured this out, especially young people, you need to hear this. The world is not our friend. The world is not our friend. Living by faith as sojourners, which is what we're doing as Christians, is a difficult place to live. You are not going to fit in if you follow Christ. You're not. You are not going to be socially accepted. And some of you are already experiencing that. We're already, I already hear stories from our young people about experiences they're already having of being in different ways shunned or derided because of their faith. That's going, unless God does something very dramatic in the next few years, that's just going to grow. The world is not our friend. It wants to crush. But when it's not trying to crush, it's also trying to seduce. It's trying to get us to settle in, to just stop fighting. You know, part of the hard thing about being a Christian, I think I feel this especially as a Christian parent, maybe some of you do, is I feel like I'm fighting all the time. 
Like, I, I, it's not only do I have to protect my kids against all the things my neighbors have to protect them. We all don't want our kids to do drugs, right? So all my neighbors, even if they're not Christians, we're all fighting that fight. But then I have a dozen other fights as a Christian father that I have to fight. And it's exhausting being different. It's exhausting being a pilgrim. And our kids struggle because they feel like freaks and weirdos because they're so different. It's hard being a sojourner. It's hard when you don't fit in. And there was an incredible pressure on these people we're reading about to just stop fighting and just be part of the culture. Lot tried to do it. It destroyed his family. It cost him his children. Esau did it. We saw that, right? He was a covenant child raised in the faith who just said, I'm done fighting. And, and all along the way, the pressure is just enormous. This is what the world is always going to be for us, brothers and sisters. It's always going to either be seeking to crush us or seduce us. All of this is pictured beautifully. If pictures help you, um, if you're one of those folks, this is all pictured beautifully in the book of Revelation because it's a vision, right? Revelation is full of pictures. And, and John represents this reality of the world with two images. You have the beast in Revelation who is gnashing at the people of God, trying to destroy them. And you have the harlot of Babylon who's seeking to seduce them. And Satan will move between these two or even offer them at the same time. The world is not our friend. The world is not our friend. But secondly, we are called to be a friend to the world. We've seen this in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's life. We know what Jesus has taught us about loving others, about even praying for our enemies. Abraham and his children were meant to be a blessing. We're about to see in the following weeks how Joseph goes to a culture, Egypt, and literally saves tens of thousands of lives because he knows a famine is coming and he prepares for it. That is a wonderful way in which a believer was a tremendous source of blessing, encouragement, and life to an unbelieving culture. What Simeon and Levi do, did was so wrong on so many levels. It was unjust, but it was, it was especially wrong in that it defiled the reputation of God's people in the world. We, we have to treat our unbelieving neighbors, friends, and family with love and respect, even when they do not treat us that way, because that is our calling as believers. That's what we are called to do, to be blessings. So though the world is not our friend, we should ask ourselves, are we a good friend to the world in the best and biblical sense? Are we seeking to love others, caring for the poor and needy in our communities, in our families, and exercising patience? Or is there just outrage and anger because we're just so tired of their threats, their antagonism, and their dislike for us? That's the path of Simeon and Levi, and it's a path of destruction and violence that haunted their lives. Thirdly and lastly, and this is the great point of it all, this chapter reminds us once again that there's only one hero in this Bible. There's only one person in this Bible. There's only one person in your world. There's only one person in your life who is always faithful. If you're looking up to Jacob or Isaac or Abraham or Paul or any of these men and saying, yeah, that, that's, that's my hope, you are very misled. This is a story about one great hero who is faithful. He's faithful through everything that happens, even when we are unfaithful. Wonderful commentator on Genesis 
uh, put it this way. He says this, the golden thread running through Genesis does not belong to any faith-filled, loyal human. It belongs to our fiercely faithful God who towers benevolently above the mess of his people's lives. Instead of being awed by unattainable ideals of human virtue, you are supposed to see beyond the flawed people in the foreground to a great, big, gracious God behind them, a God who continues to reconcile and redeem. Genesis shows you recurring failures who aren't destroyed. Instead, God befriends them, hangs in there with them, and redeems their lives, creating a family for himself and a family of faith. God saves this family, spares this family, keeps them from being seduced into the culture, keeps them from being destroyed by the culture, and ultimately saves them from themselves, from their own sins. And so it is a story of his faithfulness. So may be true with each of our lives and each of our families that as we sojourn, as we go through this life as sojourners and pilgrims, we will remember that our hope and our faith are in the faithful one and him alone. Our God knows. He knows how to walk with sojourning people. If you're feeling, as the culture shifts especially, if you're feeling more and more like a stranger, an alien, and a pilgrim, take comfort in that. God knows how to do that. He's been doing that for thousands of years. That is the way he works with his people. Rejoice and trust in him. He is the faithful God, and he's faithful to pilgrims, to sojourners. He knows how to do it. He's always done it. He'll do it for us. Let's pray. Father, we do come tonight to you very aware of our own struggle, that we are in the midst of a pilgrimage we have our years here, and they are difficult in many ways. And yet we know and see throughout this story how you are faithful in every way to your people. Help us to trust in that faithfulness. Help us to avoid the seduction of our culture. Help us also to withstand and stand up to the violence and hatred and opposition. And all the while look to you as the faithful one. Thank you for this wonderful truth that you have given, that you are good and faithful to pilgrim people. Fill us with that assurance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.